Hurricane Sandy crashing on shore. Winds now at 90 miles per hour, and this storm is so big, so vast, 60 million Americans will feel its power. This city is basically underwater. Water from the ocean, water from the bays, it is everywhere. This is the storm that we forecasted, and then some. Hi, I'm Tracy Metz. Welcome to Water Talks, a podcast about the 2023 United Nations Conference on Water and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. This series of five programs is about the weather, and to be more specific, about water. Too much of it, too little, too dirty, and too unequal. This is the first episode. We're calling this one too close for comfort. Because in 2012, with Hurricane Sandy, the weather got much too close for comfort here in New York City. Yes, that is the sound of the New York subway. In the path of so much death and destruction, Hurricane Sandy also left a number of unforgettable images. For example, the parking lot full of yellow taxis in New Jersey, where the taxis are floating in water up to their windows. And then that fantastic image from a helicopter made by the Dutch photographer Yvonne Bahn, who photographed Manhattan where the whole middle swath of the island was completely dark. Another image that has always stayed with me of New York in the aftermath of Sandy was here in the subway a Times Square where water was roaring down the steps just like a waterfall. So I'm curious to see during the New York Water Week how New York is faring now. Hurricane Sandy, the once-in-a-millennium storm that seems to be happening a lot more often nowadays than once in a millennium, makes New York City a fitting place for the first UN conference in 46 years on water hosted by the Netherlands and Tajikistan. The conference ended with a water action agenda. But will this really lead to action? Nobody knows. It really is on us, as a world. This is Henk Ovink, or, as some people call him, Mr. Water. Why? Because this former director general at the Dutch Ministry of Planning came to the U.S. and joined President Obama's Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force. In 2015, he was appointed as the Netherlands' first special envoy on international water affairs, and as such, co-organized this event, the 2023 UN Conference and the New York Water Week. A conference really as the beginning. Yes, to get to commitments from the highest level down, also from the community level up, making sure that coalitions of partners really commit to the Water Action Agenda, to really secure a follow-up that this conference is the beginning of a process where we will see water in every UN agenda, being it on climate, being it on health, being it on food or energy or sustainability. These are issues for the whole world, which is why the conference is co-organized by Tajikistan, the partner from the Global South. For those of you thinking, what? Tajikistan? Henk says it makes sense. If it hadn't been for Tajikistan, we wouldn't have had this conference. Tajikistan is, from the two co-hosts, the one that is really driving this water agenda at the UN. 
70% of all the fresh water in Central Asia comes from Tajikistan. Tajikistan has the second largest glacier compact in the world, of course now totally impacted by climate change and becoming more vulnerable. Tajikistan has the biggest dam of the world and they're building now the new biggest dam, making sure that 98% of their energy supply is by hydropower. They have the mountains, they have the glaciers and the large rivers that go transboundary. We have the delta eh, and the islands in the Caribbean. So the Netherlands and Tajikistan in that sense are logical partners. Together we have everything. You'll hear more from Henk Ovink in the next episode of Water Talks. He feels that everything is in place for something to get done. But will it? I put the same question to the king of the Netherlands, Willem-Alexander, at the Waterhouse, where the Dutch contingent set up camp during the Water Week. The king was in New York to address the opening of the UN General Assembly. Being the head of state of the Netherlands, I spoke with him in Dutch and asked him if he thinks this was just a high-level talking shop or will something really get done when this wraps up. I think the urgency is so clear now, also at the UN, that something is really going to happen. The Secretary General has also indicated he can't ignore this. It is important that water is seen as a cross-cutting element that affects every aspect of our lives. It's so important that it needs to be included in every development agenda moving towards 2030. 2030 is the year that the UN Sustainable Development Goal number 6 should be realized, which sets out to ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. In order to meet lofty goals like this SDG, Dutch experience with water management can be useful. After all, the Netherlands have been doing this for centuries. Many countries that are facing water issues, too much but also too little, think, bring in the Dutch, as did New York. So I asked the king, what more do the Dutch bring besides technology? What they from us want to learn is just... What the Americans want to learn from us is the human software that has been in our DNA for nine centuries, when and where you need to stop the water. But you also can't barricade the whole country and put it behind high walls. You also have to have an open life and an open system for your economy, for a normal life. So you live with the water. You accept that the water sometimes has to come and how you deal with that. bring in the Dutch. So when you say bring in the Dutch, you mean we have that knowledge and we can share it. And it's good business. That also helps, of course. But in the end, the consultancy by our large companies doesn't build hardware. Countries usually do it themselves. But we do indeed do good business by contributing design, know-how, and operations that you just can't get in any other country. His Majesty the King of the Netherlands, Willem-Alexander. New York has made a lot of progress recovering from Hurricane Sandy, and there are many projects happening all over the city to keep the water out in the future. We'll talk more about that in the next episode of this podcast series called Too Much. But there's also something really different going on. As the king just stated, expect the water to come behind your walls. So New York is making an effort to strengthen the buildings and houses to make sure they can withstand flooding. And the man in charge of this is Rit Agarwala. He has been New York City's chief climate officer for just over a year, and he is a man with a plan. 
In terms of reviving after Sandy, New York has had actually a, a great decade, and certainly up until the pandemic hit, New York's economy and population and everything had been growing, in fact, even faster than we had predicted before Hurricane Sandy. I think we'll see over the next year or so whether the people who moved out after the pandemic have returned. If we want to understand how much better protected we are than we were 10 and a half years ago when Hurricane Sandy hit, I'd say it's a work in progress. There's a lot that's been done. New York has invested more than $10 billion in the last decade in a variety of resilient strategies. You're elevating parks, you're elevating berms, you're doing a lot of things that involve a lot of heavy infrastructure. Heavy infrastructure is great. We need it to keep the water out. Remember at the beginning of this show, all that water pouring into the subway at Times Square and paralyzing the system? But increasingly, it is not always possible to keep the water out. So New York is also looking at how to deal with the water when it does come, how to bounce back quickly. There are a couple of other particular projects on the order of $2 billion that's been invested in public housing resilience, not to keep the water out, but to ensure that the buildings can withstand flooding that might happen in the future. One part of the strategy is to keep the water out. One part is actually to be able to bounce back so that either the buildings can operate fully during a flood or at the very least that a flood might cause a disruption for a day or two days, but not a month or six months, which many buildings experienced after the flooding after Sandy. That's the Dutch DNA, as the king said, to not just build a wall to keep the water out. Holland is too small for that, and they have no space to waste. So yes, you build that wall, but it's also a park and a pasture for sheep, and there's a bike path on top of it. It will be integrated into the lives of the people who live with it. Now that I think about it, this is the essence of this podcast. The Dutch export not only this design technology, but also this mentality. Britt Agarwala says New York has taken this mentality and this way of working to heart. The Dutch contribution to making New York climate-proof has been tremendous and played a huge role in ensuring that our reaction to Sandy was to think broadly about design and about that integrated waterfront. And I think that's been really tremendous. Has it become a new way of working? Has that really taken root, incorporating design into thinking about infrastructure? Yes. You get to incorporating design once you realize that you have to build stuff and there has to be a certain amount of public acceptance of it. Like so many cities, New York has done a phenomenal job over the last 50 years of reclaiming its waterfront. We are now very much a water-oriented city. New York always was, historically. Well, it was and it wasn't. New York in the 1960s and 70s, like so many other industrial cities, had turned its back on the waterfront. The waterfront was not accessible. The water was, was filthy. The water was awful. The waterfront was dilapidated piers and abandoned warehouses. And prior to that, it was active warehouses and factories and other uses that were used and obviously had a lot of people doing work in those spaces, but you never thought of the waterfront in New York in the 1930s as an amenity. But that is no longer the case. There are all sorts of other challenges which are perhaps much more frequent than a hurricane. We have more cloudbursts, we have more drought. What are some of the other challenges that New York now faces on a more daily basis? One of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years has been that our rainfall patterns have begun to change as a result of climate change. Traditionally, New York City, for all of its recorded history until 2021, 
never saw rainfall of an intensity of more than about four centimeters per hour. And then in August of 2021, we received Hurricane Henri on the 21st of August, 2021. And that day we broke the record. We got about four and a half centimeters of rain in one hour. And then 10 days later, Hurricane Ida hit and it gave us more than nine centimeters per hour in rain. So literally more than double the intensity that New York had ever recorded in its history. And as a result, that night, Hurricane Ida killed 11 New Yorkers, primarily through flooding in basement homes, which is mind-boggling to think of. But it was a very clear wake-up call at the fact that while we had spent the last decade thinking about coastal inundation as our primary risk, rainfall is also a real risk. And significantly, it wasn't just that one storm. So over the course of 2022, we experienced three storms, three microburst storms. So not across the whole city, but it is clearly part of the new normal. It is not something that is just once every decade or two. It's something that we will expect every year, I expect. Speaking to Hank Oving and Rit Agarwala, it seems that New York, (laughs) with some help from the Dutch, really gets it. It is facing up to the realities of keeping the water out, bouncing back when the water does come, and, most recently, extreme rain events. Now, says Agarwala, the city needs to buckle down and actually implement all these good ideas. Climate change is no longer about policy. It's no longer about ideas. It's about implementation and delivery. We've had three mayors who have been focused on climate change. Mayor Bloomberg started the conversation. We came up with big proposals. We got people to think about this. We started the ball rolling. Because you were working in New York then? Yes, I was the head of the Office of Long-Term Planning and Sustainability and launched New York City's first sustainability plan. The de Blasio administration both led and benefited from the post-Sandy reality perception that that climate change was real, which, frankly, we had to argue for back in 2007, 2008, and put in place a lot of the laws and a lot of the designs. Now it falls to us to get all of that actually to work. And so how do you get those designs implemented? Urban design and community involvement stand together on a new frontier, the use of artificial intelligence to visualize what a resilient, climate-proof neighborhood, your neighborhood, can look like. I went to the Pratt Institute's Designing in Water workshop, the final of three side events it organized around the UN Water Conference. Pratt is a top-ranked private college that is best known for degrees in arts and design. Today, the school is hosting international students working together to make three locations in Queens and Brooklyn climate-proof. And the design has to be finished in just one day. No pressure. I spoke with the head of Pratt's Center for Climate Adaptation, David Erdmann, and some of the students. David has an amazing map of Manhattan on his wall, with lakes and fields where normally streets are. Designed by AI. Well, designed by our colleagues David Rue and Carol Klein, who are architects that used to be professors here and now live in Los Angeles. And what they did was they worked with an artificial intelligence engine, giving it the prompt what would Manhattan and the five boroughs look like if it had to retain its own water and feed itself. So you get a reservoir in what is historically known as the Acropolis, 
which is up around Columbia University and St. John's because that's the highest point on the island. So get, that's a whole big swath of the yeah. west side of Manhattan that right. disappears into a lake. Yep. You have wheat fields <laughs> in Harlem. Wheat fields in Harlem. A retention basin in the Bronx because that's a low point. Governor's Island is extended into from the financial district to grow lettuces. These are not solutions per se, but they can be a, as alarming and provocative as they can be exciting and interesting. The workshop today, there's a group of students from graduate architecture at Pratt. We call them VJs. They'll be visualizing what the groups are talking about using the three sites that we're looking at today, which present three different problems. And by the end of the afternoon, they will have designed something. And will that design be then offered to, for example, the city government or the Department of Environmental Protection to say, hey, this is how our surroundings could actually look? We have a great group of allies that can help us bring this to others' attentions, thanks to the organization at the UN. And today's about ideas. So we'll have ideas that aren't generated by AI, complemented by ideas that are generated by AI, that I think will build a complementary landscape of discussion around these three areas that are good petri dishes for issues surrounding water over the coming 10 to 20 years. One of today's visiting critics at Designing in Water is Anna Oerlemans, a Dutch student of international water management and an intern at the big engineering firm Arcadis. For me, the use of AI as an urban design tool is completely new. For her, too. I think ChatGDP is a bit more familiar currently because students use it to cheat on their tests or anything. But on the other side, I think it's very great what they're doing here. They're combining three programs and thereby making visualizations of how the world can look like, what the future could look like. And it's really great that you have a visual because that really helps with getting communities at the table and including their vision on the city and therefore building different visions and sparking policy dynamics. As a student, I'm sure you've participated in a lot of workshops like this one here today on the yeah, well, Brooklyn I, Navy Yard. A bit less quick, where everything should be like done in a few hours, but yeah, I did. Some yeah, this, this is high pressure. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah everything yeah. should be clear in a few hours. They want to design things already. But yeah. What is the most important new thing that you've learned today? Ooh, that's a difficult one. I think that's a beautiful thing that we're going to include art in transforming the mass stage. We're expanding our imagination as yes, we go. Definitely. And it's, it makes the water sector a lot less technical, which is good because what I heard this week is that the water sector is still very conservative. So I think that's great that we have a bit of change. <laughs> as Anna mentioned, they're using three kinds of AI software today. You've probably heard of ChatGPT, a text program, but then there's also MidJourney and a program called DALI. So how does that work exactly? Another student, Patrick Rutan, one of the three AI facilitators today, explained it to me. What we're trying to do is really feed it realistic starting images and get a somewhat realistic result out the end. Obviously, we're working with a bunch of community groups. And if we show them some fantastical, oh, we've built a giant lake into your neighborhood, that's not helpful for them, right? Whereas if they see it actually superimposed in their neighborhood in the things they're familiar with, the sites that they've been working on and thinking about for years, it's more helpful and readable to them. And that's what we're after. How new is this? I think AI has really exploded over the past maybe year, really, even shorter than that. I think there's been a lot of interest over the past six months. 
So this is something people in pretty much every profession that has any sort of visual or even other component, everyone's thinking about it. So it's exciting. Could you tell me again the three levels of AI that you're using to make urban design more relatable? Yeah, of course. So we begin with ChatGPT, which is text-based. We ask it some questions and we see what it spits out. Give me an example of a question that you ask. Sure. So we could say, how do we make the shoreline in Coney Island more flood resilient? You could start with something that simple. And it feeds out a couple paragraphs, a couple bullet points, trying to answer that question. We will select things from that, feed that into MidJourney, along with an image of the site. MidJourney will take those things, take the image of the site, develop a very, again, fantastical kind of image. And then finally, we take that image and feed it back into Dali, which is going to be better at blending the fantastical and the realistic and giving us something somewhere in the middle. And what happens with the final results? Do community organizers take that back home with them and present it to their fellow neighborhood inhabitants? We hope so. We're working with some of them directly today at this event. So these ideas hopefully will feed directly into conversations that they're going to be having with city government officials. And they're also working with the Army Corps of Engineers. So it could range all the way up to some input on the federal level. It'd be nice to, to think that we're kind of having that effect. So, What I think is wonderful about it is the way that AI technology is being used to blend imagination and reality and come to something that people can imagine that could be their own environment. Yeah, because it's able to pull from pretty much anything that's on the internet. So it's really allowing you to access a whole catalog of interventions from different sources, different times, different whatever. It's acting as a really good accumulator of knowledge and it presents it in a very, I think, digestible format for a lot of people. And what you must not expect is a clear-cut answer. Oh, absolutely not. No. You expect options. A lot of options, yeah, a lot of variation, and it's not giving you a finished result, which I think is good because it allows a lot of room for you to interact with it and select things, cut things out, or retry. It's a very interesting tool, very versatile in a lot of ways. Next up was Eric Paez, a Pratt student from Mexico studying packaging design. He asked to come today to help create new uses for a defunct pumping station in Coney Island. Why? There's a pumping facility that's not being used in one of the lowest areas, but it's one of the least affected ones by the flooding because of the green space there is. So we want to increase this greenery and these roads, which are the main cause of flooding, because that's where these internal canals are formed and the water spreads. We want to extend this green space to these roads without eliminating for people to still have access to their homes and to different services but for the water to basically be able to coexist within the community. Have you ever been to Coney Island? Uh, once, yeah. I've been once to Coney Island. It's, uh, as they say, it's like the backyard of New York. <laughs> There's so much to do there. One of the surprises for me today has been that AI mm -hmm. is one of the new tools for urban design. Mm. Had you ever mm -hmm. seen that before? This is the first time, like, I've heard about AI. The, some of my teachers have even shown us the things that you can do for brainstorming. But it's really interesting to be able to sketch real quickly, like, how will things look? Eric, how old are you? I'm 26 years old. And I can tell that you're all working really hard over there. Everyone's so involved and the conversation is so lively. I think you'll be exhausted this evening, but you'll have a good time. I'm having a very good time, thank you. 
It's easy to look at big institutional events like the UN Water Conference and the New York Water Week and be cynical. Lots of well-intentioned talk, but not a lot of action, right? And it's easy to be pessimistic about humankind's ability to get its act together to stop climate change. But we would be wise, I think, to hold on to our optimism and start taking action. We know what needs to be done. I asked David Erdmann whether he feels that the UN Water Conference was useful. We've had three side events, one at the UN, one at Pratt Institute on the main campus yesterday, and then today is the workshop at our new research yard in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Being able to intersect at those three levels has been incredible. We had World Bank and Asia Development Bank in the room with mayors and ministers at the UN. We had Chile, we had Singapore and the Netherlands. So that was just really exciting. Having design as part of that discussion was really helpful because you could see how it could help cross-cut discussions between finance and policy and bring people together. Are you an optimist or a pessimist in this field? Definitely an optimist. I think it's important to bring the world together and I think really only the UN can do that. So for as many failures as journalists might critique it for, it's certainly productive for a lot of us to get everybody thinking and designing in similar and different ways. So for us, it's been great. Hank Ovink, the Dutch Special Envoy for International Water Affairs, whom we heard at the beginning of this program, is also optimistic. But, he warns, we live in the world that we ourselves make, and in the end, it is up to us. There's always a reason for pessimism in this world, but luckily, there is always a reason for optimism. And it's a choice. You can make as a human being, you can make as an organization or a coalition, and you can make it as an institution or a politician. And that choice is on yourself. This was Water Talks. A program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear. We've linked to a lot of the work you heard about in the show notes. Make sure you check it out. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Next time on the show, Too Much, with Henk Obink, Russell Shorto, and Matthijs Bau. What happens when way too much water comes? We'll hear how New York City is reinventing its relationship with the water after Superstorm Sandy, with help from the Dutch. That's next time on Water Talks. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening.